0: Dustin said, it's been a few weeks since we've been in 2 Corinthians. It's been a good few weeks. Um, We talked about the Ebenezer's and the faithfulness of God, and uh, we were gone for a couple of those weeks, but then you shared some great testimonies from what I hear on Pentecost Sunday. And last week, Dustin helped us to think through the gospel of Jesus. I want to thank both Chuck and Dustin uh, for their faithfulness in teaching those scriptures over the past two weeks. My family did have a really good time. It was a good vacation, an exhausting vacation. I think That's how you define a good vacation if you go home exhausted. uh, That's probably the standard. Uh, We went to Gettysburg, we went to DC, uh, we went to Virginia Beach for a couple days. We saw the Dow family who we regularly pray for here uh, for a few hours, the Dow's uh, He is Air Force chaplain, Eli is, and so we got to spend some time with them. And also the Fuller family, which many of you are familiar with, we got to spend an evening with them as well. Uh, Like I said, wonderful and also exhausting. Um, There is a certain culture shock, though, that you experience when you travel from the Midwest to certain places in the United States, particularly I'll focus on D.C. Uh, Culture shocks, probably more than just maybe one particular shock, and some of them are good. Uh, One particular culture shock that I like when I go to a place like D.C. is the diversity of culture. I love seeing people dressed in like uh, their own country's garb, and I love seeing just the diversity of the culture. I love hearing different languages being spoken around me and just trying to figure out, what, what's that one? Um, and sometimes it's just people from like the deep south or something like that. It's not anything too culturally ethnic, but anyway. Um, but those are exciting things. But one, one not so positive shock is the level of customer service. Uh, that you experience when you go to a place like Washington, D.C. I see some heads nodding out there like, yes, I have experienced this as well. Uh, there is a level of friendliness and politeness that exists in the Midwest. Even if the person doesn't like you and hate you, they will be at least somewhat polite to you and cordial with you. Um, and, and that comes in varying levels. Like I grew up in Oklahoma, rural Oklahoma, and uh, the norm in rural Oklahoma, if you're on a, a country road or if you're on a highway, is you wave at everybody who passes by. Some of you have been in Oklahoma and you get this, the hand goes up, you're waving, and that was a hard habit to break when I came even to Springfield. Faith can attest, uh, for several years, just driving down Carney Street or Glenstone, I'm waving at every car that comes by. Just out of habit, sometimes that comes back. But let's get back to D.C. When you go to a restaurant, fast food place in D.C., um, here you would expect them to say, hey, what can I, what can I get for you? there you have to force yourself upon them because they stand behind the counter ignoring the fact that you're even there. Uh, Most of them don't want to assist you, they may not want to be there, and so you have to be pretty bold to go up and just say, hey, here's what I want, give it to me now, something like that, and uh, get their attention, and they'll do it then at that particular point. Uh, We sent the kids one night into a sandwich shop to get some shakes, and um, me and Faith were outside, it had been 15, 20 minutes, something like that, we're thinking, man, what's taking so long? And uh, Alethea came out and she said, well, well, we told them what we wanted. They told us to wait at the other end of the counter and they never took our money or anything. And we're just standing there. And so I went in and kind of forced my way into the counter and just said, hey, th- my kids ordered some shakes. They never took any money or anything. What's going on? The lady was like, oh, yeah, they should have told you we're out of milk. And I thought, wow, yeah, they, they should have told us that <laughs> we're waiting here for this long. Uh, glad you didn't take our money for that. And then here's the kicker. One afternoon evening, we, we, we stopped, got off the metro in the Crystal City area, and there was a Chick-fil-A a block away from the metro station. We thought, we're going to eat nice tonight. And uh, so we, we made our trip down to the Chick-fil-A, and it was a little off even from that. But then, then the kicker was when Amos went to get, was it a refill on a pop, or you wanted to get some more juice or something, some ranch dressing? And he came back to the table devastated and said, I said thank you when they handed it to me. And they didn't say my pleasure. I mean, and I thought the bowls of revelation are now being poured out. That even Chick-fil-A is being affected. And I I realize, and I completely understand, I don't want to be harsh judgmental. That is is the norm of the culture there. That's just the way it is. They get used to it. I would certainly get used to it. Uh, But I was thinking at certain points, man, what are the qualifications to get a job here? have to be pretty low because these people, they they certainly don't like helping people. They don't like the customer service industry and and they certainly look like they don't even want to be here and be a part of this. So those qualifications seem to be a little bit low. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Qualifications. Uh, Not for work at McDonald's or Chick-fil-A or wherever you work, but qualifications for discipleship. Qualifications for the work of gospel ministry. Paul's qualifications have been in question for years now within the Corinthian church. There's been a faction that's at work questioning the qualifications of Paul, wondering if he is the true apostle that he claims he is. And we've already spent significant amount of time in chapters 1 and 2 working through Paul's defense of his decisions, of his ministry. And uh, you can go back and read some of those things on your own time. But today in our text, his defense persists. And he continues to argue. And so our, our text actually begins halfway through verse 16 where Paul asks this question, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for these things? Well, well, if, if you were here... Four weeks ago, you might be able to answer that, but most of you who were here four weeks ago, you're still lost in the context, so we're gonna do a bit of a review here. Uh, He's answering a question that comes up in what Dustin read for us in in chapter two, 12 through 16. Uh, Paul is there likening, sharing the gospel message with others to a parade that would be thrown for a general, a Roman general, uh, who was just triumphant on the battlefield. So he talks about the triumphal procession that he talks about there in that verse. And so as that that general would get this triumphal procession because of the victory that he had won for uh, the emperor, uh, there would be all sorts of of float-like things and music, and and particularly in front of him as he's being paraded through the streets, there were people burning incense. And it was an aroma that was meant to to be a reminder for the people. And and there were two, two ways that that aroma could be taken. Uh, for those uh, who were uh, liberated by the general, and now they are free in the Roman Empire, that was a beautiful smell. The aroma reminded them of the freedom they now have because of the actions of this general, and so they were there and they were excited to be a part of the procession. But there was another group that was typically involved in these parades, and those were those who had been defeated. And the defeated would be marched through the streets, and to them that aroma smell was quite uh, pungent, Because for them, it represented their defeat. And it represented the fact that they were, most of them, about to be executed at portions along the way on the parade or at the end of the parade as a sign of their defeat. So the point is, as Paul is making it in these verses, that the stakes could not be higher when it comes to what we do with the message of Jesus. Jesus is the triumphal victor. What we do with Jesus is either life to us and others or it is death to us and others. The aroma is either sweet or it is pungent. And so with so much on the line and the heaviness of this task of being the aroma bearer before Jesus, Paul asked the question, who is sufficient for these things? Who's qualified for these things? This most important task, proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, of others. If you'll join me, I just want to pray for a moment before we begin to dig into these verses together. Father, I do thank you for your word. May it be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path as we consider these truths. Help me to to be clear in communicating and give us ears to hear today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thankfully, Paul is never one to leave us hanging with questions. He usually gives us some sufficient answers, and that's what happens in verse 17. Who is sufficient for these things? And in verse 17, if you'll notice, he says, for we, that is he and his fellow companions, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Let's talk about these peddlers, or I like the word word huckster. In verse 17, Paul draws this comparison between his ministry and the ministry of the false teachers. He refers to them as peddlers. Other translations kind of flesh that out. I think the King James would say, these are men who have corrupted the word of God. But I like the word huckster. That just sounds fun to say. Uh, same idea, the idea of a huckster. What comes to your mind though, when you think of a peddler or a huckster? Let's open it up. Yeah, Isaac. Snake oil salesman, yeah, that's right. Think of the old snake oil salesman, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Controlling the knobs, yeah, getting everybody to do that. Yeah, that's good, that's good. I, I think of, uh, I had a slight thought of Uncle Rico from uh, Napoleon Dynamite selling, selling Tupperware in the living room. You know, a little bit of a huckster. But, but my first thought was actually an Andy Griffith episode. Uh, where Colonel Harvey comes to town, and you may remember this, when Colonel Harvey comes to town and he is selling his Indian elixir, right? And Aunt B, she's having a pretty bad day. She just left the doctor where she's got aches and pains and the doctor said, you're not no spring chicken anymore, uh, something along those lines. And so uh, she's really feeling bad about herself and here's Colonel Harvey in the street selling his Indian elixir that he learned by spending time with those savages as he calls them. And uh, so she buys some and she drinks a little and feels great. And she starts telling everybody, everybody in the town's buying and they're feeling great. And they're feeling great because it's 170 proof alcohol. <laughs> and Colonel Harvey is duping them all. And he's making a buck off of all of them. They fall for his deceit. Well, here in verse 17, Paul says, that's not us. But in saying that's not us, he is saying, that's them. <laughs> Pointing to the false teachers who are out to make a buck Are out to make a name for themselves off of the Corinthians. There are no shortage of hucksters still today. Uh, Not not just in what we would call maybe the the private world and in the business world or wherever you, but in the church as well. Uh, We've all dealt with and and had uh, connections sometimes with what's been called the prosperity gospel, where you send us some money and we'll pray for you and, and uh, you'll be healed of your thing. I remember one time getting a, a letter thing in the mail and it had a prayer mat in it that if I sent them $100 or something and I prayed my prayer on that cheap paper mat, uh, God would bless hucksters. It's not just about money, though. Sometimes it's about power. Uh, we've seen even in the news of recent, it's sometimes it's about being a sexual predator. And they're there for their own advantage and they're taking advantage of people. We could talk about that a lot, but we've got a lot more to cover. Paul then distinguishes himself. He distinguishes himself and his companions from the hucksters. There's four descriptions that he gives here that kind of provide us with a bit of a template then of what it is to be a faithful discipler of others. And so he gives us these four things. First, he claims that that he and his companions, they're men of sincerity. And he's already argued this point. Chapter one, chapter two, you can go back, you can read some of those arguments. But here's the bottom line. With Paul, what you see is what you get. Paul doesn't live a a duplicitous life. He's not something in public that he he, uh, is different in private. He resists hypocrisy. He's a man of sincerity, genuine. His life is an open book is one way that we could say it. If we will be faithful proclaimers of God's word, faithful disciples of others, we too must be sincere. We have to be genuine. We have to avoid the temptation of hypocrisy. Oh, and it's so easy to do in a church, isn't it? It's so easy to put on the smile and the happy face as we walk in the door and then go back out and fight in the car on the way home or whatever we do. It's easy to become hypocritical. We have to avoid the darkness that is the hiding and we have to live in the truth of the light. We have to be willing to admit that hey, we're sinners and we're strugglers and we feel pain and we suffer and we have difficult days and we give in to sin and we repent of sin and we find forgiveness of sin. We have to be open and honest with who we are as Christians. Be sincere. Second, Paul reminds them that that he's been commissioned by God. He does not visit them, he does not write them, he does not pray for them. Remember, all of those things, especially of late, they've been painful. He talks about the painful visits, the painful and sorrow-filled letters that he's written to them because of his love for them and their rejection of him. He does not do all those things motivated by some self-service. He's not out to make a buck off of them, he isn't out to make a name for himself, he loves them and he gives of himself to them. This is the heart of a discipler. Why does he do that? Because years early on the Damascus Road, Jesus commissioned him. They didn't commission him, he didn't commission himself. Jesus said, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among the sanctified by faith in me. And I would also say this, our commission matters too. As we think about the, the, the call to discipleship and our responsibility, our commission matters. Today we're going to focus a little bit later on our elders and on our deacons. Elders, your commission matters. Deacons, your commission matters. But Jesus' follower, your commission matters. We have to remember who it is that sends us. There's a lot at stake if we forget that. Third, Paul doesn't minister for the sake of self or even primarily for the people, he says, I serve in the sight of God or, or before God. It is before God that I do these things. It is dangerously easy for us to move from serving before God to serving before men, isn't it? It happens in a moment. Our sinful bent is to want to please the audience of men. It's why we often hide our sin. We don't want people to be upset with us. We don't want people to think uh, less of us. And so, so we hide that and compartmentalize our lives. That's why we often bow to the doctrine of culture rather than surrendering to the doctrine of God because we're living in the sight of men as opposed to God. But Paul reminds us that what truly matters in is, is an audience of one. Paul knew that, that it was before Christ, he would stand and give an account for the ministry. It wasn't before the Corinthians. It wasn't before the Galatians. It was before Christ. And finally, Paul says this. This is the fourth thing. We speak in Christ. To be sure, he does speak the message of Christ and Christ alone. But but here he says we speak in Christ, meaning that Christ is his association. It's in relationship with Christ that he lives. It's his union with Christ. In other words, it's Christ that empowers him to do what he's doing. He doesn't do it of his own accord. And man, if you know his situation and you're familiar with the way the Corinthians treated him, you know it's of Christ. They slandered him. They they, they said wicked things about him. They questioned him. And yet, with all of those things, what happens? Paul's love for them continues to grow. That's only accomplished in Christ. As I mentioned earlier, Paul provides this template how we minister the gospel of Jesus with sincerity, remembering who it is we're serving. Uh, We must make certain that we never forget our primary audience. And finally, he says that we make certain that it is Christ that is working through us and not us using him as a prop. Not us uh, using his name for our own selfish purposes. And boy, this happens a lot too, doesn't it? This happens a lot in the world of politics, doesn't it? Well, let, let's, let's throw in a scripture verse here. Let's talk a little bit about Jesus and then we'll appeal to these people. And I saw one this week that made me pretty sick. Uh, it was a, a family camp or something going on in Colorado and a congresswoman got up and talked about gun rights and if Jesus had an AK-47, the government wouldn't have overthrown him. And man, it just sickens me to use Christ as a prop. Paul says that's not what this is about. Let's move into chapter three. Most of our translations pose this question. You can read it in your own. Are are we we beginning to commend ourselves again? A bit of a rhetorical question. I, I like how the message lays this out. He says, does it sound like we're patting ourselves on the back? Does it sound like we're insisting on our own credentials or asserting our authority? Well, the general understanding here is Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to think that He's bragging. Most people think that Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to think that he's boasting. But if you've read this letter, Paul skirts that line throughout the entirety of Second Corinthians. He talks about, well, I'm gonna boast a little. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna give our credentials a little. And so throughout the letter, that's why some suggest then that, that he is commending himself here. I'm of that camp that Paul is commending himself to them. Just as he's already done in the letter, he's defending his integrity. And I'll tell you the reasons for that as we've already covered this. He's defending his integrity because as goes his integrity goes the integrity of his message of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And so if his integrity is in question, the integrity of the gospel is in question. Paul views his life and ministry so intimately entwined. This is why some take William Tyndale, this this is amazing, this is the only translation that, that you could find, not modern either, 1530. And here's what he says, we begin to praise ourselves again. Tyndale says, we we commend ourselves again to you. He he gets this particular point. And so let's talk about this proof then. Paul is offering proof, a reference. He, He says it's a letter of recommendation. He's selling himself. He's offering a recommendation of his own character, his own ministry, but more importantly, the message that he teaches. The integrity of the message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Paul doesn't do this in some gross, arrogant, off-putting way. We have all no doubt spent time around braggarts, people that always talk about themselves and their accomplishment, and it's very off-putting. That's not what Paul's doing. As a matter of fact, even, even in what he's already said in chapter two, notice how he says it. He is, he is establishing his credentials, but it's in a very God-exalting and Christ-honoring way in which he speaks. So some, myself included, see verse one as a bit of a contrast. Here's the way I, I would read it. We, Paul says, we commend ourselves to you. Or, or do we need as others do, a letter of recommendation from you or from other people. So Paul asks, doesn't our track record speak for itself? Or, or do you need others to vouch for us? Amos is currently in the market for a job. And uh, as is a part of that process, you have to have references. People that you've worked for and, uh, so, that, so that that employer can have the opportunity to call and say, yeah, I, I've worked with that guy. He's, he's a good worker. He does what he's supposed to do. He's on time. He offers those particular references. People that can vouch for your character. As a pastor, I've written many reference letters for uh, applications into schools or scholarships and things like that over the years just to give credential. But here, Paul isn't offering to provide a letter of reference. His first point is that the track record of his own ministry should be proof enough. In a sense, think of it this way. It would be like you, Meadowview, coming to me and saying, hey, can you give us some letters of reference about your credibility and your work ethic? As if me grabbing a few references and bringing them to you would, not, would be better, I guess, than 19 years of serving and seeing week in and week out the aspects of ministry. You've observed my life for 19 years. Isn't that better? That's Paul's point. It's better. You know me. We don't need these references. But, But what he does in verse two is both brilliant and is really beautiful. He says, you yourselves, you Corinthians yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. As if his own integrity isn't enough, he now calls the Corinthians themselves to the witness stand to testify regarding his life of integrity. He says, if, if you want to see if the gospel I preach is true, then look in the mirror. Examine your own experience. Their redeemed lives are the proof of the validity of the gospel. They can, they can be known and read by all, it says. It's observable. And so what does Paul mean then when he claims that, that their lives are written on his heart? I have a, uh, a prayer journal and uh, pretty much all of your names are in that prayer journal and I, and I don't use it as often as I should in the sense of, of pulling it out and opening it up and praying through all of those names and keeping up with it. But there are times throughout the week where you'll come to my mind and, and in that moment I begin to think about you and I begin to think about maybe the circumstances that are going on in your life. Some of you, job changes, there's sickness in your family. And in most of those moments, I take the opportunity to pray. To pray for you, to pray for the situation. Sometimes in those moments, I'll text you and say, hey, what can I pray for you about this week? Well, how does that happen? What's going on there? It's because because you're written on my heart. I don't have to have a book. Those books can help and, and having a, a prayer journal can help to kind of make sure people aren't slipping through the cracks or, or, or whatever the case may be. But that's what Paul wishes to communicate to them is his great affection and love and says, you're right here, you're written on my heart and he accomplishes it, it's beautiful. But this work that Paul speaks of is not his to boast about. Does Paul work? Absolutely. I, I love what he says. I think it's in First Corinthians where he says, I worked harder than all of the, the apostles. Like I put in the effort. Yes, he's put in the effort, but is his work in the gospel ministry the primary work? He says no. Absolutely not. Notice verse three. And you show that you're a letter from Christ delivered by us Written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. And it's not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. Beautiful language, beautiful imagery. What's he communicating in the metaphor? Some of you are recognizing, yeah that language sounds really similar to what is spoken of in Jeremiah and Ezekiel when it comes to the new covenant that God promises. And so that's the necessary connection we need to make. And we're going to look at those passages. I'm going to ask you to turn with me, if you would, to Ezekiel 36. I think it's important that we make this connection. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. That's a fun book to find, right? Here's what the Lord Yahweh says. I and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you and and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice the heart of stone, the heart of flesh, my spirit within you. If you turn with me now to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. Just before Ezekiel. Ezekiel. Verse 31, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. See the new covenant that's promised here in Ezekiel and Jeremiah that, that is fulfilled in what Paul is saying, even to the Corinthians, it comes in line with a series of all sorts of covenants that God made with his people. Covenants that by the way, uh, God was always faithful uh, to keep and man was always faithless to break. Man continued to fail. God remained consistent. It's why I love that that word that we find in the Hebrew, his chesed, his faithfulness to his covenant, his loving kindness towards his people. See, God created all things to enjoy him. Created man to enjoy him. But man driven by the temptation towards selfishness and man then driven by selfishness turns from God. There was something man thought was better. You can can be like the God. God God is holding out on you, was the line that was sold. And so man driven by selfishness turns from God. The Bible then is the history of man's failures. Over and over, inability. Uh, to do what's right, an ability to be right. And, and God promises even from the beginning that he will, he will send a rescuer, he will send someone to deliver, someone to fix what our sin has broken in us and around us. And so through the pages of the Old Testament, uh, we're, we're on the lookout for that Savior. And we see these people begin to pop up and we think, oh, well, maybe, maybe that's him. Abraham, he seems like a great candidate. He's willing to leave his hometown, go to a different place, and then what happens? Abraham, he blows it. A sinner just like the rest of them. We could go through all sorts of other characters. Jacob, he was kind of scarred from the beginning. Moses. Then when David comes, I think everybody's thinking this, this could be the one and then David crashes and burns. And so as story piles on story, we realize the depravity and the inability of man to do good, man needs a savior, man needs something outside of himself to fix himself. As the new covenant points out, he needs a new heart. He needs a fundamental change of who he is from the inside out. And so enters Jesus who knew no sin, who becomes my sin, who becomes your sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The great exchange of our sin for His righteousness, this is the good news that we're called upon to embrace and believe, and as we do believe, it is through the Spirit that we are born again and made new creations in Christ. The new covenant is fulfilled by the coming of the indwelling Spirit. The promise of Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled, the promises of the new covenant, every other promise is fulfilled in Christ and the work of the Spirit. So why does Paul bring this up then? What's his point in bringing the new covenant into this conversation? He wants to make certain that they understand that that they are the, the, the product not of his genius. And Paul was pretty smart. They're the product uh, not of of his scholarship or his ability to win an argument or his dynamic speaking ability, not his labor, but they're the product of Jesus' life of righteousness and Jesus' death of sacrifice and Jesus' resurrection. Paul, as some have dubbed him here, he's just a secretary. He's just an agent that's being used by Christ. The real work is accomplished by Christ and his life-giving spirit. They're not a letter of ink, but it's the spirit of the living God that's at work in them. It's not tablets of stone, it's tablets of the human heart. They're not products of man, but of God. As Dustin even mentioned last week, we must be born of the spirit. And that's the promise of the new covenant. I want to make one point before we move on from this. People are are looking for a savior. They're looking for that satisfaction. They're looking to fill that void. And and the temptation we might face as Christians is, is oftentimes to step into their lives as if we are the savior instead of pointing them to the savior. We point the sick to the great physician, we point the blind to the one who gives sight, the anxious and the depressed to the one who gives hope and joy. We point the sinner to the forgiveness and the forgiver of sin. So with all that said, let's, let's land this plane, verses four, five, and six. If you would read those with me again though, he says, such is the confidence Paul says, it's in this that my confidence lies, that we have through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Again, notice that Paul is quick to set things straight. It's not his doing. His sufficiency is not in himself and in his gifting. It is in God who gifts him and makes him sufficient. For those of you who who may have been born with incredible gifting, this could be a fierce battle for you throughout your life. You must all constantly remind ourselves that our gifts, our life, our breath are all a result of the grace of God. As Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? Somebody has given you these things. I think of Moses and his excuses about his poor speech in Exodus. Remember, there, the burning bushes before him, the commission's been made, and Moses says, I can't do that. I'm not good at speaking. I speak no good. I don't know how he said it. But he tried to make the point and he tried to sell it. I I can't do this. And I love Yahweh's response Who gave a mouth to man? Who makes a person mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And so go and I will be with your mouth and will teach you what you must say. I come back to this story a lot. I'm always drawn back to this particular story because I'm not a, I'm not a great classy communicator, but also remember in my younger years you couldn't have paid me a thousand dollars to stand up in front of people. And every time I I do this, I'm reminded that it is God who equips. It's not of my ability. To this, commentator George Guthrie writes, thus God makes the inadequate to be adequate, and the unqualified to be qualified, the incompetent to be competent. It's his work. Great missionary of old to China, Hudson Taylor, said it this way, he said, God chose me because I was weak enough God does not do his work by large committees. He trains somebody to be quiet enough, to be little enough, and then he uses them. What a great word. We need to give him praise for the sufficiency that he's given us, for the gifts that he's given you, for the benefit of the body. We need to be more like the one leper who turns and says, thank you, than the nine who just continue to go on, forgetting who made them whole, and who made them sufficient. It's God who made Paul sufficient to minister the new covenant, and he says this, not, not based on the letter which kills, but on the spirit. And so, uh, first I want you to make a, middle note, a mental note of this. Paul brings up this letter, this idea of the law, because of what's coming in the next section. Because starting verse seven, he starts talking about Moses. And the veil and how he went up on the mountain and received the law and and the the glory shone and the veil was there. And so he's setting us up for what's coming next. But but how is it that the letter kills and the Spirit gives life? What's he mean here? Living by the letter of the law alone is when we attempt to live in obedience to God, to follow the law, to be good enough, apart from the life-giving Spirit. That is all scripture testifies and I think our own experiences would testify is a painful and impossible way to live. It's a disappointment every day because we can't do it. We can't be enough. We can't be the Savior. Only the Spirit that comes through the promise of the new covenant enables us to obey. Living according to the law apart from the Spirit is a fool's errand. So let's talk through some implications today. Uh, the first group I want to address is our elders. That's myself, it's Dustin, it's Chuck. I want to include our deacons in there, Jason, Nathan, and Tori. As I was preparing to leave for, for vacation, we were kind of trying to figure out those weeks that I would be gone, and Dustin, he asked about teaching this next section. He said, hey, would, would you mind if I... I jumped in and taught this next section and I said, no, you can't have it. It's mine, you know, leave my, leave my second Corinthians series alone. No, I did selfishly keep it for myself because of the content for today. I knew it would be fitting for what we're doing as we're installing our elders and our deacons today to be reminded of these truths. And so I just want to challenge our leadership and, and in challenging our leadership, by the way, I'm going to come back around and, and, and help you all of us to recognize uh, these things are the calling on all of our lives. And so so pay close attention as we work through this. First thing I want to say is be sincere. I'll strip it right out of here, guys. Be sincere. We hear and read a story every week of a pastor, an elder, a church leader who resigns the ministry because of some moral failure. It happens all around us. Moral failure that begins when we begin to make choices to live an insincere life. Choices uh, that we make to hide our sin in the dark rather than to bring it into the light. Do not give Satan that foothold into your life. Don't open that doorway by living with unconfessed sin. Being an elder and a deacon comes with intentional qualifications. Qualifications that I believe You have met, this church has responded to recognize you to fulfill those positions and they believe you have met them as well. Jesus nor this church, understand me here, Jesus nor this church demands perfection of you. So don't try to live because here's what happens when we think, oh, I've gotta be perfect. I've gotta be on all the time. What happens is then when we're not that, we hide it. And we create that duplicitous life, the life we are as a church leader and then the life that is the reality of the way we live day to day. Confess your sin, invite the spirit to work. Second thing I wanna challenge you with is love these people. You're not not in the position you're in and you haven't been recognized to fulfill that role in the church uh, because we doubt this. We, We know you love this church. We know you love these people. But the challenge is to love this church as Christ loves the church. Paul provides us with a powerful example of the love of an elder or a deacon should have for the church even when they slander him, they ignore him, contradict him, it doesn't diminish his love in some weird, Christ-like way. it, It seems to empower his love all the more. And his love grows in the face of that kind of adversity. So my prayer, and I hope your prayer, is that the Spirit will write the lives of each member on your heart. Love grows, remember, as we pray. Love grows as we serve others. That's the way in which it develops and grows, as we give of ourselves. Third, remember that your sufficiency is in Christ. You will face many situations that, that like me, you will foolishly believe yourself to be capable to attack without pausing for a moment of prayer. This is an easy one, and you charge headlong in. And here's the thing, God is gracious that in many of those circumstances in my own life, he's worked, despite me. But there will be some times where you may charge headlong in and you realize, like Samson did, where's the spirit? I'm not filled in this moment. I'm running low. Then on the other end, sometimes you'll face situations that seem impossible. And as the scripture teaches, yes, with man, these things are impossible. But with God, nothing shall be impossible. In these moments like Paul and like Jesus' own example, we must pray all the more fervently for him to work. Four, faithfully protect the gospel message that has been entrusted to us. It is easy for the gospel to get lost or replaced by other things. It's easy to move back into law. It's easy to move into other things. But the gospel is the message. The gospel is the hope. We have to continue to focus the majority of our attention, as we've said often around here, on the vine. The vine work rather than the trellises. On discipleship and not ministries on spiritual growth and not, as I read this week, nickels and noses, people and money. It's the work of discipleship with people. One more thing on this point, it's not enough that we protect the purity of the gospel, we also are called to put our, put our confidence in the gospel. Are you confident in the gospel's work in your own life? Are you confident that it's, it's the life, death, and resurrection that can work miracles in the lives of other people? That it's something otherworldly than this that God is doing? There's a lot more that I'd like to say. There's a lot more that we will say in time. Now to all of us, elders, deacons, Jesus followers, I want to address everybody for a moment. These principles are not just for the elders and leadership. These principles are for all of us. Though the commission, the position of elder is unique, the commission, the position of a deacon is unique, we've all been commissioned by Christ. To do what? To make disciples. To be about the work of discipleship. Discipleship is not a church leadership work. It's the work of the church and so who are you pointing Jesus to? Who in your life, who in your, who in your scope of people are you presently pointing Jesus to? Who are you praying with? Who are you walking through the struggles of life with? There's no shortage of those people around us. There's no shortage of opportunity. Who are you, uh, who are you encouraging and equipping with Scripture? Who are those people that the Spirit has written onto your heart? All of the above. All of the above is the heart of discipleship. It's what this letter, it's what this series is about, learning to be better disciplers in the world around us. Yes, I'm making up words, I think. Finally, most urgently, if you're here today and you're just tired, you struggle to have peace, You try your best to be a good person, and then you crash and you burn every day, every other day. Well, I'll just say it this way: welcome to the club. That's what the church is. The church is a collection of failures. But we're failures who found forgiveness. We found peace. We found joy. We found hope in Jesus. And we've not only that, but we've we've also found new life. We found victory in the spirit. And so. Today I urge you, if that's you today and you're just exhausted, you've been trying to push the rock up the hill like Sisyphus and it just keeps rolling back down on you and you keep trying again, just stop. Turn to Jesus, put your trust in him because only his life is sufficient. Only he could do what Adam couldn't do, and what Abraham couldn't do, and what Moses couldn't do, and what David couldn't do, what I couldn't do and what you couldn't do. Only he could live a life of perfection and righteousness. Put your trust in that. Only his death was sufficient. Only in his death is there the offer for forgiveness of sin because of his perfect life. He stands in the place of broken man. And only his resurrection from the dead is sufficient. Hope in this life and hope beyond this life as we sang about today. Today, invite the Spirit to give you a new heart. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. I want to ask you to bow with me this morning for just a moment of response, an opportunity for you to pray whatever prayer you need to pray. For some of us, it is a prayer of repentance. Maybe there's been a lack of sincerity in our lives. There's been struggle. We need to confess sin. We need to walk in the light. Maybe you've been trying to find your sufficiency in yourself or in others, and rather than finding it in Jesus, maybe you're here today and you're, You're not a Christian, you are a Christian, and you're just exhausted because you've just been trying to do it on your own. Turn, turn to Him today. If you need somebody to pray with you, this is an opportunity for you to come. We've got a prayer room just over here to my right. Somebody will pray with you, answer questions that you have. But otherwise, let's just take a moment now in the quiet. Let the Spirit work. Father, we thank you for the life-giving work of the Spirit. We thank you for the fact that you're a God who keeps covenant. Despite all of man's failure in history, you continue with the promises that you made. You provided the Savior. And we are so grateful. Help us now to be faithful ambassadors, faithful disciples of others people of sincerity people who recognize it is before you and and of you and only by you that we are enabled to, to serve what a privilege it is to be a part of what you're doing in this world thank you for our time we pray now for what follows in Jesus name Amen